Welcome to Movie Maniacs. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. My name is Chuck Curry. Also, my co-host, Kenny B. This is Movie Maniacs, a weekly uh, podcast radio show where we talk about anything and everything in terms of the world of motion pictures. Also, even uh, delve into uh, the world of uh, television, anything that pops into our mind, whether it's present, past, or future. As I said, I'm uh, on the air with my co-host, Kenny B. We are heard on WoWo, W-O-W-O, out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And also, Ken? We are heard on Cool 98.5 WXPM out of Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. On this week's uh, uh, program, our, our topic, which we always do at the end of the show, top ten list, or we try to do a top ten list. Our t- this week's going to be our top ten favorite characters in sports-related movies. With the release of Creed three this weekend, we figured it would be an interesting uh, topic to tackle. Uh, this week we do have Creed three Ken, which is getting a lot of good reviews, ninety percent positive on Rotten Tomatoes. As we speak, uh, Michael B. Jordan directed this film. I have not seen it as of yet, but i got to be honest, my, uh, my uh, uh, excitement level has increased over the last uh, week due to these really good reviews. I am partial to Sylvester Stallone. Being in the franchise, he is attached as producer. I don't think that means a lot. He's not uh, does not appear in this movie as uh, Rocky Balboa, which is sort of a bummer, but I'm going to have to accept that reality. Uh, as it is. Anything on your mind before we uh, get into the heart and soul of this week's uh, well, program? Yeah, a couple things. First of all, I, I think, you know, now that LeBron James has passed him, I'm glad to see that Michael Jordan has another job and that he's, uh, you know, doing movies. So he's doing that okay. Helps. That helps. But, um, yeah, there's just two things I watched on, um, that I binge watched this week that I want to mention to people. Um, on Amazon, there's a show by Christopher Waltz, where, starring Christopher Waltz, called The Consultant. Right. He, he uh, the way he played that role, uh, sort of like almost a maniacal business consultant, it is worth watching. It really is. And it's set up for a season two where he'll consult at a different business. But I really enjoyed that because you had no idea where the thing was, was headed. And the other one... On Netflix, it's almost a telenovela, uh, Triptych. It's um, a Mexican show about three identical twins separated at birth and a murder and a whole mystery and all that stuff. And it actually uh, caught my interest and got me into it. So a couple of good things to watch on um, as far as binge shows. I watched a couple of movies this week. And what do you watch? I'm, I, uh, memory um, with... Um, Liam Neeson, and uh, he's, it's the same, he's, he goes around, he's, can he do anything other than a super assassin? I mean, does he, have, can he play any other role anymore? What's and, really interesting about Liam Neeson, uh, ter, you know, obviously, the guy's a terrific actor, cre- terrific screen presence, uh, you know, Schindler's List, uh, he did so much good work, and then obviously when he did Taken, uh, he found a little bit of a niche, and he was offered money to keep doing these movies, and he sort of has morphed into our generations of, of, of Charles Bronson. I think he's a better thespian than Charles Bronson, although always a big fan of Bronson. But uh, Bronson also got pigeonholed very much into that category, especially, well, I, Charles Bronson sort of started almost 
later in his life. But, uh, uh, you know, once Bronson did Death Wish back in 1974, then he did Death Wish 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and then Intended Midnight, all that sort of uh, type fare for Canon, the Canon studio back in the day. Liam Neeson uh, has become a hired hand into that uh, that 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 exact same type role over and over and over. It works to an extent, but uh, he's done some clunkers as long as uh, as well as some good ones. Taken being uh, the best. Yeah, the the interesting thing about memory is he is a uh, he's a hired killer whose family's got a history of early onset dementia, and he's taking uh, drugs for his Alzheimer's, and uh, ultimately. Um, he's going to succumb to it, but uh, very interesting that we have an, an aging killer that we give Alzheimer's to. Uh, I, I, I've never seen that part of the role before. That is interesting. Uh, I got to check that out. Actually, I'm, I'm a big uh, Liam Neeson fan. Let's b- bounce in the box office. Interesting weekend at the box office just uh, passed. Ant-Man and the Wasp: Quantumania, a movie that I said I was uh, disappointed in. It does have some merit that mostly being in the likability of Paul Rudd, but overall, I think the movie missed its mark. Weekend number two dropped 69% in ticket sales week to week. That is the largest drop-off so far for any Marvel movie. It did $32 million, $167 million here in the States first 10 days. Let's see how it holds weekend number three and four. Big story, I guess, was Cocaine Bear, Elizabeth Banks' new uh, uh, film horror comedy uh, got out of the gate really well tracking at 15 million blew past that tracking to 23.3 million that is a good number for uh, the for, for her the producers all involved in the studio and especially theater owners which get get a movie that has something different than just a superhero or uh, something exploding in the background on the big screen the Jesus Re- Revolution Kelsey Rick Grammer's in that film here to the religious crowd, and boy, it hit its mark, 15.9 million. That is a solid opening weekend for that uh, movie. Avatar Way of Water, 4.9, 666, 600, think about that, 666 million uh, to date, a lot of money. Puss in Boots continues to uh, have a little fall off week to week, now up to $173 million uh, total. That's a solid uh, number, and one other point of, of Interest I want to point out, Megan, uh, which uh, is, is a uh, PG-13 uh, horror movie in the vein of Child's Play, like Chucky, 95 million eight weeks of release, although I was changing the, uh, the, the, the streaming networks on my smart TV and realized on Peacock Network that they do have Megan on Peacock now in the theatrical version and also the unrated version with more content and more gore. Uh, very quick turnaround again from theatrical to uh, to Peacock in this case, simply because the movie still has some viability in theaters. I still say let it play out, wait a little, wait another month or two for Peacock. I don't think you're going to lose anything. No harm, no foul, but they just can't simply wait to try to cash in all their chips as quickly as possible. Now we bounce into this weekend Creed 3 which is tracking at 48 to $50 million opening weekend. That would be the biggest opening weekend of, of any of the first uh, three Creed movies, which is says something considering Sylvester Stallone is not in this movie. So Michael B. Jordan does have a lot of, uh, he has a lot of fans. Uh, Jonathan Majors coming off Ant-Man Quantumania where he plays Kang the villain. 
getting a lot of press lately. So this is creating a good uh, good buzz, good opening weekend. Then you bounce into a week later, you got Scream 6, which is tracking at around a $50 million opening weekend. Week later, you got Shazam 2, which is tracking, I think, a little bit over 50, which is uh, decent for a superhero movie, although I'm sure they would want better, but still solid. And then a week later than that, John Wick 4 with Keanu Reeves, which is also going to do very well at the box office. I would say, Ken, this is the biggest momentum uh, that the theaters, uh, theatrical uh, releases have had since uh, pre-COVID. So week after week after week now, this is the first time that we have real viability of a main movie opening five straight weekends at theaters, and I think that's good news. I, I, I think it is as well, of course. So momentum in movies is like momentum in baseball. It's only as good as today's starting pitcher. So you have a great a great month or so, and then... All of a sudden, you have nothing else coming out. Momentum falls off. Uh, but, yeah, uh, true. But I don't know if I pointed this out on last week's show, but if I did, I'll, I'll uh, expand on it. Uh, Warner Brothers, which has its Flash movie coming out June 16th, they ran that Super Bowl commercial, got tremendous buzz. Michael Keaton back as Bruce Wayne, Batman, a terrific trailer. Evidently, uh, Warner Brothers DC is so confident in this movie that they're going to screen it at CinemaCon in April, which is two months before its theatrical release. This is pretty much unheard of. Going to screen The Flash for over 4,000 uh, people uh, at CinemaCon. That, obviously, if it goes over well, and they fully expect it to go over extremely well, is going to create a lot of buzz, must-see buzz. And as I predicted last month, I do believe Flash will be the biggest hit released in 2023. Now, I do say, hey, let's produce other things besides superhero movies, but since this has been in the can for two years, I am very much looking forward to it. Love to see Michael Keaton back as Batman has not played the role since uh, 1992. Uh, Tim Burton's last installment, he did two Batman movies, 89 Batman, Batman Returns in 92. So very much looking forward to that film. Uh, in terms of, uh, uh, we have, we are, um, about a, a little over a week away from the Oscars, uh, pre Oscar stuff in the SAG Awards, which aired on Sunday night, everything, everywhere, all at once, one best ensemble, which is the equivalency of best picture. Uh, Brenda Frazier did win best actor for the whale. I gotta tell you, there's one thing I'm going to be rooting for on Oscar night is I do want to see Brenda Frazier win for the movie The Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. Uh, that movie was shot, Ken, for $3 million. Not a huge marketing campaign at all on what they spent. Let's say, hypothetically, they spent 10 or $15 million to promote it worldwide. It's done $33 million worldwide now. So a $3 million movie has gained a little bit uh, in terms of uh, wind in its sails. Good to see a uh, lower-budget fail fair with a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of effort, a lot of heart. I think uh, just a, a really uh, good performance by Brendan Fraser. Maybe it, it, it might be a tough watch for some. I was fascinated by this movie. I, I watched it twice and uh, must say I am rooting for Brendan Fraser hardcore uh, come, come Oscar night. The one thing I, I noticed about the SAG Awards was that the, the, the controversy, because apparently Mark Wahlberg gave the... Uh, the award for the best picture. And when he was 14, he had done some things that were anti-Asian. And I'm getting so tired of wokeness. Oh, yeah, me 
Then I, I mean, but it was like, oh, well, it was terrible. He should not have been picked because it's like, oh, come on, folks. But here's, here's the way I look at that. You look, you see yourself, Mark Wahlberg, okay? Is this guy a good guy or not a good guy? And he's a good guy. And doing an analyzation of, of, of it's just, it's become absurd. Uh, you know, they look for skeletons in, in, in every closet. Uh, and they tweak and they turn and they twist. I I, I am tired of it. Yeah, he, he's a good uh, guy. He he's a good guy who grew up as a thug and made a life yeah. for himself. And I mean, it, that's I, we should probably celebrate that. I, I would agree. One other point: uh, Producers Guild Award. Tom Cruise was presented with, I believe, a lifetime achievement. I watched his speech on YouTube. I got to tell you, uh, you know. People could say whatever they want about Tom Cruise and Scientology. Uh, that's his private business. But I got to tell you, when he speaks about the industry and about his career and what he's gone through, uh, and he talked about his first movie, which I believe was Taps in uh, in, in the early 80s, and, and, and the, the break he got with that movie, and then his future success. To listen to Tom Cruise speak, I gotta tell you, it's very impressive. It's very impressive. Uh, he has a complete hold on, on what he's achieved, what he's done, the industry as a whole. Very few people understand the, 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 the A to Z uh, in filmmaking like Tom Cruise, even though he's not a director, but he is a producer and he's a star and he has attached himself to multiple, and I mean multiple, winning projects. And, you know, Top Gun Maverick is a huge example of uh, a movie that has really helped the industry tremendously post-COVID. But I was very, very impressed, I must say, with Tom Cruise's speech uh, at that Producers Guild Award. I don't know if you got a chance to say I, I didn't, but I, you know, I almost had him in my top ten for today. Uh, from all the right moves, because I really loved that movie back in his younger days. Very good. And as we said, uh, we're going to do uh, later in the show our top ten favorite uh, characters in, uh, in in sports-related movies with to coincide with the release of Creed Three this weekend. Let's bounce into some uh, this week uh, in in TV or movie uh, history and and some celebrity birthdays. February twenty eighth, which was uh, technically this week. Uh, final episode of MASH aired on CBS. It was titled Goodbye, Farewell, Amen. Alan Alda, who played Hawkeye, the series star, directed the episode. Here's what's so interesting about this, Ken. It was viewed by an estimated 125 million people in the United States alone. Watch the episode of MASH, which aired February 28th, 1982. Goodbye, Farewell, Amen. And unlike a lot of final episodes of television shows, this was a terrific piece of television, extremely emotional, dark, hard-hitting, character-driven, and a wallop of a piece of television. 125 million people. You could go on YouTube, Ken, and watch people uh, watching this last episode in 1982, February 28th, in bars, crying, emotional. That was a collective experience that you don't see uh, anymore, other than the Super Bowl, which is the last collective beacon uh, I think we have in this country. Think about that, 125 million people watching the last episode of MASH. you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I remember it very well. I, I, I remember watching it. A couple, couple things about it. One is, it's been beaten as far as total viewership, but I don't think it's ever been beaten as far as market share, because at that time, that was a huge market share to have that many people watching. and the, 
the thing I remember about that episode, it was his whole thing, you know, Hawkeye's thing with the psychiatrist and the lady with her chicken making noise and silencing the chicken and then ultimately becomes, you know, she kills, she smothers the baby so they don't right. get discovered. That was, it was such a hard hitting thing. Oh, it was. I mean, I, I don't know if, if audiences expected the, the, the emotional wallop that they got, but they really went, uh, they went dark in that episode. They really did. And then we all remember the end, you know, the motorcycle and the, you know, he can't say goodbye. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name now. Uh, the guy who replaced uh, Trapper. But uh, BJ, but you know, in the, in right. the end, in the end, you know, the end with the uh, spelling out goodbye with the stones and all oh, that. Awesome. Two and a half hours. That, that last, that last shot was was television brilliance. Indeed. Yep, two and a half hour uh, uh, final. The only thing even close to that was the end of Cheers when uh, the last scene, somebody comes down, tries the door at the bar, and Sam says we're closed. Right, that was a great piece of television. I'll give you some comparisons in terms of ratings. Uh, August 29th, 1967, last episode of The Fugitive Heirs, which finally gives a resolution to the 1M man and whether uh, the, the, the David Jansen character is innocent, uh, proven innocent, or vindicated. Um, 78 million people tune in to watch that episode with a 72% market share. Think about that. CBS, you have CBS, NBC, ABC. 72% of all televisions that were being viewed were watching The Fugitive that night. Pretty, that's impressive stuff. That, that is impressive. And uh, here, a couple more just to, to, to make comparisons. Uh, Seinfeld aired May 14th, last episode of Seinfeld, May 14th, 1998. Uh, 76 million viewers watched that episode. Here's the thing about that. That last episode was a disappointment. Oh, terrible. Uh, yeah, it was a disappointment. It just, it, it just, it, it missed the mark. But having said that, 76 million people watched it. Dale Roll didn't hit, it did not hurt the legacy of that, uh, the popularity uh, and the creativity of that sitcom. One other, uh, March 6, 2004, last episode of Friends draws 52 million people on uh, NBC. Pretty, pretty good last episode. Maybe not great, but good enough. 52 million Watch the last episode of Friends. Do you have any recollection of last episodes that uh, pop into your mind? Um, the the second Bob the second Bob Newhart show with Larry Daryl and Daryl up there in New England where he has the uh, the inn and oh, okay. and the last step the last scene he wakes right. up and he's laying next to Suzanne Plachette, his wife from his first show, and it was all a dream. And of course, awesome. Saint Elsewhere, where the entire show may have been. An autistic child in his snow globe. Now, I think that, listen, I think the Newhart episode was brilliant. I mean, how obviously that popped into somebody's mind with Bob or one or somebody that popped in. It's it just like when that idea pops in your mind and you run with it, I was a massive home run. And I remember they shot that before a live studio audience and the reaction when the lights go on uh, <laughs> was was just simply iconic and incredible. In terms of St. Elsewhere's last episode, that drew sort of a very, very polarizing re re reaction. It is, it is very intriguing, a la, if you like, say, The Twilight Zone. That's just like, holy smoke, that's like really cool. But if you're not into that stuff, um, that might rub you the wrong way that the entire series was in the mind of an autistic kid uh, via looking through a snow globe uh, in 
interesting decision, to say the least. Some other uh, This Week in Movie History, you'll like this one, Ken. May, uh, March 2nd, uh, 1944, a movie called Casablanca wins the Oscar for Best Picture at the 16th Academy Awards. Um, and it was, you know, the thing is that, that that movie is so timeless, and you look at it, and sometimes I, I look at it and say, why do I love this so much? Uh, because, you know, it's when you just boil it down, when you explain it to somebody, it's hard to explain what's there, but it's just such a perfectly acted movie, such great characters, such great actors, and because several of those actors were actually fleeing from the Nazis, such raw emotion and just just perfect, and it's it broke the formula of boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. And um, it just, um, I mean, he ends up with Louie, and you have my choice between uh, him and uh, and Elsa. I'm not going to necessarily choose Louie, but just a great movie. How would you answer the question if somebody said, uh, this is because I find this interesting, uh, how would you answer when you say a movie is timeless? Like, does it matter? Does it really matter what year a film came out? If it's a great movie, it's a great movie. Like, if, when you, you speak to young people, high school or college, and they say, ah, you know, I don't really want to watch that movie. It, it's old. How would you answer that question? Well, I, I think what makes it timeless is that the, yeah. <clears throat> the issues of oppression and totalitarian governments never get old. So it's something... It's something that you can look at beyond the story, even, and it's it's a it is a movie about personal honor and the common good versus your own selfish desires, and that that never gets old. I agree with that hundred percent. Also, this uh, week in movie history, March second, nineteen sixty five, The Sound of Music uh, premieres in theaters. Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer goes on to win the Oscar for Best Picture, one of the most popular movies at the box office of all time. Julie Andrews, no doubt, a massive, massive talent. Yeah, and I think that actually played at the West Side Theater in Scranton for something like three cons- three years total wow. running. I wow. mean, it was, that, that, it was amazing. People don't believe that a movie could run that long, but back in those days, yeah, uh, m- movies certainly could. 1933, let's go back uh, again, March 2nd. A movie called King Kong premieres in New York City. Fay Ray. Uh, you hear the thing about King Kong. They've done three uh, theatrical versions. I actually, I actually, I am partial to the '76 version with Jessica Lange, maybe because I grew up on that version and I love this. I love the score. There's a lot of things that I liked about it. It's far from perfect, but I also did like Jeff Bridges and Charles Grodin in that movie, and then Peter Jackson did his uh, epic King Kong uh, with Naomi Watts. In the, in the lead role, uh, that movie was sort of interesting in terms of casting Jack Black, Adrian Brody. Uh, weird, sort of very out-of-the-box casting. But the thing about King Kong is um, it's very sad. And I always, you know, that's the one thing about watching King Kong. Yeah, it's really fascinating, interesting to watch. But then at the end when, you know, he's killed off, it's, uh, it's not easy to watch. Uh, it's not easy to watch that. I always sort of like that, cringed. When, uh, when Kong has to go at the end, Ken. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, the 76 version sexualized the relationship between Kong. Yeah, it and, did. And, it was, did. and I'm watching it in the movie theater and I'm saying, am I just being perverted or... No, and it's like, no, I wasn't just they, being perverted. They, they, certainly went, 
they certainly went there. I will say one thing, and I've said this to Mike on the show. I did a revival of King Kong 76 on the big screen. I saw it originally in theaters when I was a kid, but I still think Jessica Lange may be the most beautiful woman I've ever seen on the big screen in that movie. Uh, that really was sort of acclaimed the same in multiple ways because she got her acting got knocked uh, as the character Juan. I mean, she was just playing ditzy, and she goes on to win, I think, multiple Oscars after that. She proved the naysayers wrong. Uh, birthdays of interest this week. Ron Howard turns, uh, I believe, 72 uh, years is he 72 or 79? Uh, I think he's 72. 72 years of, uh, of age, uh, known back for Andy Griffith show and then Happy Days, which I, I loved Happy Days when I was a little kid, uh, as Richie Cunningham. His relationship with Arthur Fonzarelli, that character on the show, is one of the great friendships in the history of television. Went on to become a prolific director. Uh, one of his first films, actually, is second. Night Shift from 1982, one of my all-time favorite movies, Henry Winkler and Michael Keaton. They don't make, and Shelley Long also, terrific in that movie. They don't make movies like Night Shift anymore, won the Oscar for Apollo 13, uh, Beautiful Mind, oh, Beautiful Mind, uh, great, he's done great stuff, Backdraft, uh, so many good things. Ron Howard is an Americana, I guess is apple pie. Ron Howard's had a great career. Yeah, and in fact, I always remember uh, when he was on Saturday Night Live, and Eddie Murphy, of course, called him Little Opie Cunningham. And Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy was incredulous that Ron Howard had children because he said, "I can't believe Little Opie Cunningham did it." Yeah, he. he I mean. So that's the Americana uh, part. That was the point of that story. Yes, I, I I agree. Other birthdays of interest: Daniel Craig, uh, who has been James Bond, turns fifty-five years old. Got a really good franchise here in Knives Out. You want to see Daniel Craig is likable? Uh, I've said this on this program before. The Invasion to the Body Snatchers remake invasion that he did with Nicole Kidman got, got, took a lot of shots from critics because they had to refilm the ending with the Wachowskis from the original director. But I think that movie is very underrated. He's not the star. He's the co-star. He plays Nicole Kidman's love interest. And I don't think he's ever been more likable on screen. Check that out, fans, if you haven't seen Invasion. Give it a look. It's it's actually a good film, in my opinion. And do you have any thoughts on Daniel Craig? I, I, I hate his accent in the uh, in the Glass Onion and in Night's Out. Okay. I don't okay. like I don't like that accent. I don't know what he is trying to be. My my biggest thought is that just because I read this somewhere yesterday, a story about Audrey Plaza, is that yeah. there are people saying that she should be the next James Bond. Well, maybe not James. I don't know. I don't think they're going to go there. I don't think they're going to do a gender swap. I, I think ultimately in the next, probably in the next year, maybe a year out, they'll, they'll cast someone, whether it'll be a name actor or an unnamed actor, but it's going to be a man. It'll be a male. It'll be James Bond. It'll be 007. And we'll see where this goes. One other birthday. Hey, wait, before you, get us, before you get us canceled for being anti-LGBTQ, yeah. if in fact James <laughs> James Bond, yeah. if, if she identifies as James Bond rather than Jane Bond, we are 100% behind that. Okay, fair enough. Listen, nobody, nobody loves female oh. action heroes more than me. I, I, lo- I, you know, I just screened The Last Kiss, Good Night with Gina Davis from 1996 to the ESU Girls Across team, and they loved it. I loved, I, listen, I, I, that movie's awesome. She was awesome. Isn't it? I love female action heroes. 
I just did James Bond is James Bond, though. If you want to do a female-led action series, do it. I'm 100% on board and supportive. One other birthday of interest before we get on to our main topic. Uh, an actress named Kay Lenz, who was born in 1957, March 4th. Uh, she was co-see. She, she played opposite Peter Strauss in Rich Man, Poor Man, book two. She played his love interest, one of his love interests in that. She's also in Death Wish 5 to, uh, for The Crackdown. I just liked her work back in that period in the uh, in the late 70s, 80s. Kay Lenz, happy birthday. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but I am a fan. I, I, I actually am. She was in a uh, a movie I remember from watching it in a, the matinee on Dialing for Dollars where she was having an affair with a man whose um, wife was dying. But I, I do actually remember. One thing I wanted to mention is uh, earnings came out um, a couple days ago for AMC. Mm-hmm. And they they did better than expected, which means they had a smaller loss than ex- expected. But that's but a bit meaningless. They, they, yeah, beat, they beat the expectations as to revenue, but they're still well behind last year for the fourth quarter. So this year's fourth quarter was behind last year's fourth quarter, which I think had Spider-Man. Uh, but something that near and dear to our heart, they're averaging $19.98 total ticket and concession per patron. Can you imagine at our theater if we could average $19.98 a patron? No, I cannot. See, that's the difference. Ken's talking about a theater we're both involved with, which we've talked about on this show numerous times, Pocono Cinema in East Strasburg, which is an independent nonprofit. And we're charging for a regular movie ticket for a non-member, a non-student, non-military $9. But the problem with uh, some independent film, uh, independent movie theaters that is our concession price average per person is way lower than a multiplex. But I gotta tell you, Ken, $19 for AMC uh, per person, ticket sale and, and, and concession, is pretty pretty darn good. It's pretty darn good. It's actually an all-time high, although as I pointed out, because I, I love to tweak the, uh, the AMC shareholders on Reddit, um, it's called inflation as well. Yeah, true, very true. But I got a question for you. If AMC was not a publicly traded company and operated as a private entity, would it, would it, could it even survive? Yes. In what form? Uh, well, the, their, their biggest problem is that they have five billion, with a B, mm-hmm. dollars in debt. If they why, didn't have... Why, is, that, is that, would you say, what percentage is that post-COVID related? Uh, actually, it started in around 2018 when the, you know, people don't realize the movie industry peaked around 16 yeah. or 17. So um, a good portion of that was was pre-COVID, but, you know, they've issued a lot of stock. Yeah, if you had a 100% equity-funded company, you could survive. I mean, Cinemark is actually turning a profit. Well, that's, that's good. Listen, I hope they do well, and I hope they just thrive. And like I said in the beginning of the show with the slate of movies that have been released or coming out, I think uh, the, the, the sky has a little bit more sunshine, but we'll see how it goes. Now let's bounce into our top 10 favorite real characters we like in sports-related movies that coincide with the release of Creed 3. I'm going to start with my 10 through 6, and then I'll let you uh, get the 4. My number 10, I went with Dennis Hopper's character of Shooter uh, in the movie Hoosiers from 1986, a role that was nominated for an Oscar. I didn't put Gene Hackman on the on this list, but I'm trying to spin it, 
a little bit of a different way. I mean, obviously, I love Gene Hackman's Norman Dale, and that's still one of my all-time favorite characters. But I went with the character shooter. Very complex, interesting character here playing a, a town alcoholic who you find out has immense basketball knowledge that the character Norman Dale, played by Gene Hackman, recruits uh, to be one of the assistant coaches uh, on the high school Indiana team. He is the father of one of the players. I just thought Hopper was awesome in this movie on multiple levels, but the scene where he goes wandering on the court uh, after he's stabilized himself as the assistant coach uh, and, and goes off the wagon once again, I always find it hard to watch, but I, I love Dennis Hopper as a character shooter in Hoosiers. That's my number 10. Number 9, how's this one for pop culture, Ken? A movie that came out in 1977 called Slapshot. The Hanson Brothers uh, became pop culture icons as three brothers who play on this hockey team. Uh, the Chiefs uh, coached, and uh, uh, Paul Newman was the star of the show here. The Hanson Brothers were awesome. When they entered this movie, when they speak, it was hysterically funny. Uh, they, those three actors who played these brothers, or whoever they were, uh, became big celebrities back in the day off this movie. So my number nine, the Hanson Brothers. Number eight, I went with Burt Reynolds, Paul Crew from the 1974 movie, The Longest Yard. Eddie Albert as a prison warden was awesome. Burt Reynolds was awesome. He probably his best toupee, meaning one of his best all-time roles. I love me some Paul Crew. I love me Longest Yard, one of the great all-time participation, yell back at the screen movies from uh, the 70s. So that's my number eight. Number seven, I, I went with Gina Davis as Dottie Hansen in The League of Their Own from 1992, one of the great sport movies of all time. I love a character. She plays the catcher in an ensemble cast. This movie's awesome, but Gina Davis is an awesome talent. And in retrospect, when I look back at her career, this movie, The Fly, Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, Thelma and Louise, Gina Davis is one of the all-time greats, and she's never been better than playing Dottie, uh, Dottie, uh, Dottie Hansen in Penny Marshall's great A League of Their Own as a team's catcher. And my number six, I, I went with the character of Ray Kinsella, played by Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams, one of the most unique, fascinating, thought-provoking, entertaining sports movies of all time in a very different way. And it was led by the most likable presence you could have in Kevin Costner as a character of Ray Kinsella. So that's my ten through six, Ken. Um, Anxious to hear yours. All right. Uh, well, my num my number ten, uh, just a bit outside. It's Mr. Bob Uecker playing Harry Doyle in Major League and Major League Two. Because as the radio announcer, he basically acts a bit as the narrator, and uh, he his Bob Uecker is just was a great humorous talent. Whether he's in the movie oh, yeah. or doing a commercial for. Um, you know, oh, wow, we got the best seats, and then he's up in the last row, or he's on The Tonight Show. But he was great in that movie, added a lot of comic uh, flair to it. I think he helped make that movie. So Bob Uecker is Harry Doyle in Major League and Major League Two. The next one, it is claimed. It could be, a, it could be untrue because I'm not sure that there were any limits on roster sizes at the time. But Joe Montana claims that Rudy Rudiger only got to suit up because he was injured and did not suit up. 
even though Rudy was not a quarterback, of course. For all my friends there in northern Indiana, as a graduate of Notre Dame Law School, I have to pick Sean Astin as Rudy in the 1993 movie, Rudy. They, they take some... Um, a, a bit of uh, license with that movie. According to Montana, they did, in fact, lift him up on their shoulders, but they did it more as a joke than out, anything out of admiration. But uh, Joe, Joe sort of ruined the whole story for me. But in any event, I thought it, that Rudy was a great movie. I know you show it still as a uh, to, to people. And, uh, he, Fire on my list. Yep. Uh, okay. Uh, Anthony Perkins, before he was crazy... As Norman Bates. He was crazy as Jimmy Pearsall. Yeah. Jimmy Pearsall was a minor leaguer for the Boston Red Sox. And he, play, he played in Scranton, in the first Scranton minor league team, which went out of business. And it would be 20-some years before the Phillies would establish a minor league team in Scranton. The Scranton Red Sox used to actually play in Dunmore, which is outside Scranton. Their right field was my grandfather's house up on the hill. He had a billboard for his business on his house because it was in right fields and people could see it from the stands. Well, Anthony Perkins did a great job. And Anthony Perkins had, I'm sure, had some had some mental illness himself because you don't yeah, play... I, 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 I read when he did that movie, he was not athletic at all. And he really couldn't even throw a ball. And it was, what, what, what uh, hand did Jimmy Pearsall throw with? I do not remember. Okay, I think I think Andy Perkins had the, the, the opposite throwing hands, and they had a they had a film around it. But he had really no athletic ability, but he still was good in that movie. Yeah, and it was uh, to me it, it it showed it was a movie about baseball, but it was really a movie about mental illness. And, you know, right? He, he, he Pearsall did actually once climb a backstop, and so and I always was a Pearsall fan because he and Frank Melzone were the last two major leaguers to come up through Scranton as a minor league team. My number seven, I got Ray Ralston on the, I get him on so many lists. Uh, this, is a, this is a joint one. Ray Ralston and Gwen Verdon, he plays Mr. Applegate. She plays Lola. Mr. Applegate, of course, is the devil. The movie is Damn Yankees from 1958. Of course, they get Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe to, uh, they, they make him into a young man again and a star so his Washington Senators can finally beat the Yankees. Lola double-crosses the devil. Uh, just, they, he's just so good in that. Uh, always, he has these small, quirky roles that always play well. Number six, he was um, his wife, his future wife, who was uh, played by Teresa Wright as Eleanor, played him, called him Tanglefoot because he tripped over the bats in the on-deck circle. It was Gary Cooper playing Lou Gehrig, in 1942's Pride of the Yankees. Uh, I love with, that movie. With an honorable mention to the guy who played Babe Ruth. He did it so convincingly. Oh, that was Babe Ruth. Yes, that was Babe. That was Babe. That, and, and when you watch, hey, when you watch that and you realize that, that see, something about the lore of Babe Ruth, even if people don't know about Babe Ruth, like the history of Babe Ruth, but they know about Babe When you see Babe Ruth on film, there's something majestic like it's an elevation of like almost like a god. It's a, even though the guy was, not, he, I mean, doesn't look like today's athletes, obviously. But there's something very special about seeing Babe, the real Babe Ruth, on film and a movie. And and and, and that speech 
at the end of that movie, like, if you're not completely choked up, whether you're watching the, the real version or the, 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 uh, the, the version in the film, it's just, it's iconic stuff, Ken. Absolutely. So that's my seven, my 10 through 6. I just want to point out one, one of the points about Bob Uecker. Lately, I've been to just kill time and actually to reminisce because I like doing that. And I, I like I look at YouTube videos a lot, right? So I've been watching a lot of wrestling stuff on YouTube from the '80s. Roddy Piper, I love Roddy Piper, and then brought me to the feud between uh, when Andre the Giant turned heel uh, and he fought Hulk Hogan in WrestleMania three. They had Bob Uecker as uh, a guest. Uh, celebrity announcer, and they did a spot with Andre the Giant where he's interviewing him uh, before the match, and Andre the Giant puts his huge hands around Bob Uecker's throat as if he's choking him, and it's just so, the way Bob Uecker reacted to that was just so funny, but I love Bob Uecker, I mean, he said the guy's uh, an, an institution, especially, obviously, in uh, Milwaukee. Now we'll go f uh, five through one, one at a time. My number five you could do multiple characters, and there are two characters from this one movie on my list. But as good as Rocky is, and he's higher on my list, played by Sylvester Stallone, I don't think you could have the the greatness of the original Rocky without the casting and the character of Apollo Creed, played by Carl Weathers in that original 76 version. Obviously, it's a riff on the majestic celebrity, uh, athleticism, iconic performance persona of Muhammad Ali and you couldn't get a better person to play that role than Carl Weathers he was born to play Apollo Creed and he has equal importance in the original Rocky as the character of Rocky and you don't really dislike Apollo you just want Rocky to win but he is just great it's the nuances of that character the, the majestic uh, uh, powerful uh, likability and charisma uh, of that character. Great character, Apollo Creed. That's my number five. But boy, oh boy, Carl Weathers hit an absolute home run with that performance. Uh, Apollo Creed is my number five. And you know, as you were introducing that, I'm going through my, oh, he's going to do Mickey. He's going to do Paulie. Well, yeah, I, I, I you, did you could do a top five from that movie. Yeah. 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 You, know, you, could list, you could put every character in that movie yeah. on a list. But I, I, chose to just do, I just chose to do two. And one is Apollo Creed. Another, my number five, again, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame Law School. I went to Catholic uh, college. I was raised a Catholic, which means I was raised a Notre Dame fan. Um, mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan, of course, was in this movie as George Gipp. But it's Mr. Pat O'Brien playing Coach Newt Rockney in Newt Rockney All-American. Great movie about really the rise of Notre Dame football and, uh, you know, the golden age of Notre Dame football until all the other teams caught up because everybody's on television now. But a great movie, great performance by O'Brien, um, great performance by George Gipp, even though people think that the entire halftime speech was made up by Rockney and Gipp never actually told him to tell the boys if they're up against it to go out and win one for the Gipper. But just a classic movie, classic performance. Uh, I would... Uh... <laughs> wholeheartedly agree. My number four, I went with uh, Mr. Miyagi, played by Pat Morita in the Karate Kid franchise, especially in 1984, one of the great movies of that year. Pat Morita, mostly known for people as playing uh, uh, Arnold uh, on the sitcom uh, Happy Days, funny guy, did stand-up 
comedy. Uh, you know, I did um, I did a, I did a email interview with uh, director John Alveson when I did a revival of The Karate Kid at the Pocono Cinema. He was very gracious to answer a lot of different questions, and uh, they 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 the studio wanted different actors to play Miyagi, uh, specifically a Japanese. Uh, actor who was well known in Japan, but when Marita came in and read for that role, it was something that knocked it out of the park. So he fought hard for that cast and got it. Uh, I, I think it was absolutely iconic. His chemistry with Rob Macho as Daniel LaRusso uh, made that movie uh, one of the best sports movies, uh, one of the best genre movies, I think, of all time. Has re- relevance, obviously, Karate Kid has been revitalized with the Netflix series, which is nothing short of brilliant in terms of, uh, of, of fanfare uh, and, and love of that franchise. So Mr. Miyagi, one of my all-time favorite characters, played by Pat Morita, is my number four. My number four is from Caddyshack from 1980. It is the gopher. The gopher and Caddyshack, and of course Bill Murray and the gopher, their interaction. Bill Murray is Carl, Carl Spackler, inter- interacting with that crazy gopher and the the steps he went to to try to eradicate the gopher, and of course that famous scene where Bill Murray chops the tops off of all those flowers, which was totally ad-libbed and could only be done in one take because they were real flowers. But in any event, Bill Murray from Caddyshack, along with the gopher. Uh, great, great pick. That, that's uh, Bill Murray at his zany best. That movie's also an iconic movie. The repeatability in that, that people, when that pops up on cable, you know, hey, it's Caddyshack. Let me watch. My number three, I went with the character of Roy Hobbs uh, from the 1984 Barry Levinson movie, The Natural. It came out in the same year as The Karate Kid, one of the great years, as me and Mike have stated many a times on this show, of genre filmmaking. Uh, this movie played, I remember seeing this movie at the Avenue Movie Theater in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, boy, does this get the majestic nature of baseball right. Uh, his bat says Wonder Boy. He's a mysterious character, the greatest uh, that 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 ever ever was, ever will be. Uh, his home run, which was reminiscent of a home run that Reggie Jackson hit in an All Star game in Detroit, hit the upper uh, skylighting uh, in, in the in the movie. All the lights flare when he rounds the bases uh, of of hitting that home run. Robert Redford, I think, was born to play. Roy Hobbs, uh, a classic character, a classic movie, in my opinion. Uh, so Roy Hobbs is my number three from 1984. I remember growing up, there were some shows about pool that were on television, hosted by Minnesota Fats. And in 1961, Jackie Gleason played Minnesota Fats in The Hustler. He won an, or was nominated for an Academy Award for Supporting Actor. Of course, Newman was nominated for Best Actor. But Jackie Gleason just played Minnesota Fats so well in that movie, The Hustler. So that was my number three. Very good. And, and uh, you know, what's interesting about uh, that movie, obviously, Scorsese sequelized it uh, in the 80s with Paul Newman as, as Eddie Fel- Felskin. Uh, I thought it was a t- terrific movie. Tom Cruise and Elizabeth Mary Antonio also in it. Didn't like the ending, but loved the movie. Uh, great bookend, original, and sequel. My number two, I did go Rudy Rudiger played by Sean Astin in the movie Rudy from 1993. i got to tell you something about this movie. Uh, this is the d- definition for me of great character-driven filmmaking. Uh, David Onspaugh, who really only did a handful of films. One was Rudy, one was Hoosiers. Boy, did he hit both out of the park. But Sean Astin, I'm assuming when that movie came out that year, 
that the Academy probably never even gave one look at nominating him for Best Actor, but should have been, because he was that good. And likable, uh, completely all in, had the audience sucked in to that movie. Super good character, very motivational. And I just want to say kudos also to Ned Beatty, who played his father. I thought Ned Beatty maybe did the best work of his career in Rudy, a true classic from 93, but Sean Astin as Rudy Rudiger, a classic performance and character. So that's my uh, number two. My number two comes from Field of Dreams. Um, and I, I, I looked at three characters, but see, I'm, I'm a huge fan of... Let me, get, let me guess who you're going to go with. Okay. James Earl Jones. That was, that, was, uh, that was almost who I went with. Oh, okay. But then... I am the world's biggest fan. I think the possibly the greatest baseball player who ever lived. His batting average is like two points below Ty Cobb. But he could run like the wind and he could feel like nothing you've ever seen. And he was wrongly, wrongly maligned because he did not cheat. I just love Ray Liotta as show, shoeless Joe Jackson. I just love the fact that there was a movie in which Joe Jackson, even though he's not on the screen very long is not played as a criminal. And so I, I went with uh, Ray Liotta as Shoeless Joe Jackson from 1989's Field of Dream because to me, he may be the greatest baseball player of all time if he had not been banned from the league. That's a great pick. You know, what do you think if I told you, that in, you know, in interviews that Ray Liotta, he never watched that movie. The late, it's hard to say late, late Ray Liotta who's in the movie Cocaine Bear. Actually, but he never watched the finished product of Field of Dreams. You know, what's interesting about Field of Dreams as a whole is that when you put that story on paper and then you say to yourself, uh, eventually this movie's going to be produced into a movie. And, and there's a thousand ways for that movie to go wrong. A thousand ways. And most people probably would have got 999 wrong. This was Lightning in a Bottle. It's a very special experience, very special movie that me and Mike have talked about many a time. Huge fan, you're a huge fan. It's a great movie, great characters in this film. Uh, but yeah, Ray Liet is great as Shoeless Joe. Uh, and and it's, it's just a really interesting movie. Almost plays like a Twilight Zone episode in, in, in many respects, but I, I think it's a true classic, great pick. My number one, I went with that, which I had to, I went with the character of Rocky Balboa, played by Sylvester Stallone, because I think it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest pop culture character of all time. Who would have thought that playing a boxer on the big screen could radiate and span so many generations now with the coming of Creed 3 that lives in the Rocky universe. But 1976, Sylvester Stallone, who is an unknown story, has been told many times, wouldn't sell a script unless he got to play the title character, studio, which was United Artists, ultimately relinquished. Every characterization in this movie is simply spot on and perfect. At the heart of Rocky, it's a love story. He does a great job with Talia Shire as a, as a couple. That is the heart of Rocky, but as a boxing movie, it works brilliantly. It's a, it's a human story of a human being who has a heart of gold uh, and just wants to make something better of himself. The movie is a, is, is a classic winner. I remember seeing this as a kid uh, in 76, running out of the theater. It motivated the heck out of me. I saw it at the Avenue Movie Theater in Brooklyn, New York. The, the sequel, Rocky II, Ken, when that movie came out, opening day at the Kingsway, half, oh, oh, I think the entire 
uh, elementary class cut school to go watch Rocky II at the Kingsway when the boxing match between him and Creed was on. Everybody stood up in their seats and was jumping up and down rooting for Rocky to get up, get up, and he did. But what a great character, uh, Rocky Balboa. Uh, and, and it's a great story that parallels the life of Sylvester Stallone. So Rocky Balboa was easily my number one character in a sports-related movie. And, you know, I'm inspired. Whenever I go to Philadelphia, I always run up the steps of the art museum. How winded do you get? Uh, not very, because I run up the back steps. <laughs> no, the back steps is only like four steps. Those are, the, those are the front steps he was running up. Very good. Very good. I also wanted to mention, who would have thought back in 1989 that we would be playing an annual Major League Baseball game at the Field of Dreams? That's kind of neat, too. Even though the Yankees lost the first one to the White Sox. My number one, if, if anybody's ever seen me play golf, he is my, he's my inspiration as a golfer. Some people are inspired by Tiger. Some are inspired by Jack Nicklaus. Some even by uh, Bobby Jones. I was inspired by Happy Gilmore from 1996. Adam Sandler plays golf the way it's supposed to be played. Has fun. I'm, I'm trying to per perfect that, that hockey run-up he has. Just love the, his character and uh, him and Shooter uh, McGavin, Christopher McDonald there in Happy Gilmore. I love that movie because I like to play golf, but I'm not a serious golfer. It's sort of like the, the how-to movie for those of us who want to enjoy golf, not necessarily do well at the, at the game. So I'm going to go with Happy Gilmore and Adam Sandler from 1996. That movie, no doubt, lives in infamy. That's a really uh, infamy. That movie uh, is a lot of fun, and that's a really good book. You know what? Just before we wrap up, you know what just popped in my head? Talking about sports-related stuff, uh, I don't know why it popped in my head. You said Bobby. Uh, remember Bobby Riggs? Uh, and remember the episode of The Odd Couple back in the in the in the seventies? Uh, I watched that show and repeat ad nauseum. But Bobby Riggs challenging Felix Unger in a battle of of uh, Battle, basically a battle of, 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 to prove that the, the, the sexes are different. Uh, I love that episode of the the Odd Couple. A very interesting person in the sports world, uh, Bobby Riggs. Thoughts on that guy? I I, I I can still remember the two matches he had. You know, he beat yeah. Margaret Court Smith, but then he lost to Billie yeah. Jean. And people yeah. said people use that as an example when they try to argue, well, women can compete with men. No, he was the number six thousandth ranked player at the time. And she right. was she was a star, but yeah. Uh, and he and he he was obviously a circus act, and he knew how to self promote, and he self promoted himself into making a lot of money. And that movie, I forget the name of the movie, but that Steve Carell played him, and Emma Emma uh, Emma Stone played uh, Billy Jean. That's a good movie. That is a really good movie. It is. Actually. It is indeed. So I had a lot of fun. And any closing thoughts before we wrap it up, Ken? None whatsoever. Okay, to the audience, thank you very much as always for listening and uh, on Movie Maniacs. We will be back next week. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts.
podcast by Federated Media.